Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Well, hello. It's the end of the week, presumably. Uh, you all made it. We made it. We're pretty excited about that. We've got things we want to talk about. When I use the word we, I'm talking about the panelists of the nose, our weekly cultural roundtable. We are uh, privileged and honored to have in the center seat here today, the sort of Hollywood Square's center square, John Dankosky, <laughs> the executive editor of the New England News Collaborative. We tried to get Whoopi Goldberg, and she was not available, uh, and the host of The Wheelhouse and next on WNPR. Uh, also with us today, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, Director of Development at Covenant Preparatory School. Jacques Lamar is a playwright and director of client services at Buzz Engine. Uh, I like saying Buzz Engine. Uh, and we'd like to just t- tell you before we get going here a couple things that our panelists want you to know about. Jacques wants you to know about uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning composer, uh, Thomas, Thomas Donker and Yusuf Komunyaka, I probably should have pronounced, uh, practiced those names in advance, will be performing the Mercy Suite at the University of St. Joseph on Friday, March 29th. I've actually listened to it on SoundCloud. Very interesting. And uh, Tracy wants you to know about Johnny's Jog. You might even get to see Tracy Wu Fastenberg there. It's a 5K in West Hartford at Blueback Square this Sunday, 10 a.m., in honor of a very brave young man benefiting three local charities, including her own Covenant Preparatory School. Yes, she will be holding down the fort it says here at the Covenant table. Go to johnnysjog.com for more. All right. So uh, in the second segment of the show today, we're going to talk about uh, the beautiful, wonderful, uh, praiseworthy Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse uh, Oscar-winning animated film. I guess I'm sort of like tipping my hand about that one. Um, and um, But the panel may have other things to say. Uh, but we want to begin with a conversation about public shaming, a conversation that was begun uh, very effectively last Sunday by John Oliver on his show. Uh, he talked a lot about the modern climate of public shaming, but he capped it off with an interview, and these are not easy to get, uh, with Monica Lewinsky. And so let's hear a little bit of uh, Monica Lewinsky uh, on the media's portrayal of her. As the, everything escalated, all the, all the reactions to it, obviously I'd like to see this kind of character of yourself that has yeah. your face and name, but which bears less and less relevance to who you actually are. Yeah, it was like so bizarre. I mean, it was just, it was, it, I, I say extraordinary, not with any positive connotation. And I think it was not only just the slut shaming, not only, you know, having had a, an intimate relationship with someone who is now describing me in a way that was like no young woman would want to be described. Sure. There was just also my looks. I mean, I, I, you know, was very about the touch-ups and the makeup because I'm like part of my vanity now comes from just the wound of um, having been made fun of for my weight, for, you know, people saying I, I was unattractive. And it was terrifying, not only because I was watching myself or this version of myself I running away from me. I mean, stolen. My identity was stolen right. in a different way. I mean, not to say that I wasn't flawed and, you know, that I didn't make terrible mistakes or do stupid things or say stupid things because, yeah, of course, I did. 22. You know, Right. So... <laughs> Every 22-year-old is some version of an idiot. 
<laughs> you just lost a lot of viewers. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's true. That's true. I just let me. That. Not not you. No, no. Not yeah. whichever twenty-two year old is listening now. Not you. Not you. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, so so I mean, it's not it's not like I was this you know perfect angel, right? But I watched this sort of deconstruction of me and rebuilding of me. It's like a transformer almost. So there's a lot of things here ranging from, I'd like to talk just a little bit about her and this interview, uh, but there's also a much larger question. And, And it's also, I think, relevant to note that she went through what she went through before there was the kind of social media environment that there is now. And yet what she went through seems more searing and scarring. And John, I'm going to start with you because I think, although obviously you, you, you fly your plane at a slightly higher level than I fly mine, but whenever I'm watching something like this, I think, have I, to what degree have I done that? To what degree have I objectified somebody or turned them into uh, a much more static uh, and, and not particularly complex version of themselves. I think about this a lot, but then I think about the fact that most of the time when I'm saying something that perhaps is uncharitable or goes a little too far, it's about someone who's made themselves a public figure through deciding to get into the political arena mostly or deciding to take the job as the CEO of a very big uh, corporation. When you put yourself in the spotlight in that way, as John Oliver, I think, in the lead up to this, does a very good job of explaining, you put yourself in a little bit different sort of peril than if you are an intern in the White House or if you're just a person trying to make their way in the life in, in, in their life and you just get thrown into something. And I think that's the difference, that, that self-reflection that John Oliver does He says, I've told jokes that I shouldn't have told. I think we all have to go through that. But so many of the people, Colin, that you and I encounter or that we might poke at a little bit have put themselves in a position where, you know what? You're going to get poked at. Toughen up. You did in a very uncharacteristic, non-Dankowski-like moment on Wednesday as I was quoting Gino Ariema yell, shut up. I did, didn't I? I, And I will say that I feel very strongly that some, like, that's a perfect example of someone who, when whining to excess, he should probably learn to shut up because there's an awful lot of problems in the state that he's saying, I don't have to worry about, I just coach basketball and get paid a ton of money for it, and you got to do whatever I say. And that bothers the crap out of me. So, you know, we can poke at him a little bit. So let's switch back to Monica for just a second. And Tracy Rufasterberg, you were but a young buttercup uh, growing (laughs) in a field at this time. So I'm not sure, I don't know how easily you can appreciate. I mean, watching her, I I have to assume she's much crazier in real life than she came across. I thought she was marvelous in this interview, funny, spontaneous. But knowing what she went through, I just can't even believe that she could possibly have survived into the person that she appeared to be. Well, I sort of thought about it that, you know, For her to become an intern at the White House, she had to be sharp. You know, she didn't necessarily get there by being, you know, unintelligent. And she came off as very sharp here. Um, Yeah, I'd probably be hiding under a rock no matter what uh, if I were her. And one of the things that I actually found very interesting and introspective about it is that, you know, you think about all these things that happen and people say, oh, gosh, if that happened nowadays with social media, it'd be 10 times worse. And that's one of the things John Oliver said to her. And she said, you know what? Yes and no, because I could have also had those few people who said, hey, we're here for you. Hey, mm-hmm. we're here to support you. And for her to be able to sort of nuance it out like that, I thought was really interesting because I would have blanketed it with, gosh, I'm glad that didn't happen when everybody could be attacking me on Twitter at the same time and whatnot. Um, and again, I was young when it happened. I, I was in my teens and um, let's just say pretty innocent and didn't quite understand what was being <laughs> described in the news. Um, but 
I do remember the impeachment hearings. I remember the news at that time. And I can't imagine now as a 38-year-old being in my early 20s and being subjected to all of that, you know, at, at such a time when, you know, you're supposed to be enjoying your life and doing silly things and, and whatnot, but your youthful transgressions are splashed across everywhere and tattooed on you for the rest of your life. Mm. I mean, Jacques, actually, you know, Jacques, you have a remarkable ability to make social media a fairly pleasant and welcoming environment. But for the most part, despite what Tracy just quoted Monica mm -hmm. is saying, I don't think that's really what it's like. Most of the time, the destructiveness outweighs the nurturing by some kind of order of magnitude that would be hard to describe. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, w I was uh, really kind of uh, very conflicted about the news with Felicity Huffman, mm -hmm. um, who obviously recently underwent a massive public shaming. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, whether or not you believe she deserves it, I was like, oh, I really like her. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I made, you know, uh, a joke or two at her expense on on Facebook and I felt bad about it at the same time. I was like, oh, it's funny. And <laughs> but it's, you know, for a lot of people, You're it's not actually not required funny. to publicly shame anybody. No, 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 no. But I mean, you know, I. Um, I'm Facebook friends with with Mike Daisy, mm -hmm. uh, the the monologist, and you know he went through a very uh, unpleasant period because of um, uh, stories he told uh, regarding Apple and and um, and he was talking about the the shame that he you know has has been forced to undergo by being branded a liar for for so many years. I think it's been about seven years. And and so there's that part of you where it's like you want to join the pig pile uh, and and of judgy people, and there's other parts where you other things where you're like, oh, wait, but they're potentially like Monica Lewinsky, good people who may have made a bad decision at a certain point or what have you, and now are having to live with this with this stigma. When we got to the part of the interview where she was talking about social media and how it would have been different today. I actually thought she was going someplace different, Tracy. It, it wasn't to the support that you might get, but the fact that the cycles are so fast now mm -hmm. that you very well could have forgotten about Monica Lewinsky within a couple months. And it, now, yes, of course, all the stories would have been on Google forever, but you wouldn't have had it as present as it was because it was in the newspaper every day and it was on every single right. television station. And you just didn't have as many avenues to consume things, so you just had it there in front of you and sitting... and. I don't have a newspaper anymore. I we did growing up, so it was sitting there on your kitchen table staring at you. Yeah, so. like today, Monica Lewinsky would be like, thank God for Felicity Huffman. Now I don't <laughs> have to worry about me anymore. Um, I mean, one thing that I totally identified, she also talked about the pleasure of blocking somebody, the almost <laughs> physical pleasure of blocking somebody. And I, I've people uh, have a way of getting on Twitter just to kind of publicly shame me. Like they don't like the way I said something. Uh, they don't like the way I express myself about this. And, and I, I have this new rule where I will make one attempt on Twitter, which is a hard place to reason with anybody anyway because of the character limit. But I will make one attempt to kind of explain myself and, and, and maybe encourage them to think of this a different way. And if they come back at me with shaming, I block them instantly. And I actually do find that's that, – like I don't want to get in a protracted conversation with anybody about this. And it's often clear that the reason they're communicating with me is not to try to make me a better person or to – highlight something that they'd like to see me correct, but because they want to make themselves feel better by by doing this. I mean, there's and, – and I kind of get that too because for the most part, you know, for decades and decades, you know, people have felt pretty powerless. But now you can, if you want to, uh, attempt to shame somebody 
who's you know further up the ladder from you, and that's yeah, enjoyable. We've all got our electronic scaffold that we can <laughs> throw people <laughs> up in their scarlet letter, and uh, and you know I I I may have done it more when I f- not necessarily because it Facebook was a nice place at one point, and then uh, I don't really spend much time on Twitter, mm-hmm. but uh, but in terms of Facebook, I really have tried to. Um, to make it more of a pleasant place to be, but that's you know, uh, it's did, hard. Sometimes. Did you send the chugga chugga choo choo thing to them, to the other uh, panelists? No, no, no. But we were just, Tracy and we I were, were just, just talking about back it. and forth here. <laughs> so he sent me this thing today. I'm I'm so grateful when something like this happens, and it happened on Reddit. Reddit is like the worst hell, probably, of social media. But they got into this big argument about whether it's chugga chugga choo choo or chugga choo choo or. Eight chuggas followed by a choo-choo, and there were, like, people putting math formulas in there, you know, with hyperlinks and stuff like that. And I was so grateful that there on Reddit they were doing something nice and fun and kind of pretending to flame each other a little bit as opposed to wanting to destroy one another. So, John, you know, Brian Slattery has this formula, which I hope I I can summarize it correctly. He says when it's – in the case of a creative person, a creator or somebody – Felicity Huffman, you you have to work out the value of the person's work Mm -hmm. and then – as against whatever sin it is that they've committed. So yes. presumably in your universe, you know, Miles Davis might be allowed to be a slightly worse person. Yeah, I was writing on Miles Davis, Charles <laughs> Mingus, the people, yeah. 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 Then Kenny G or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, well, uh, exactly. And I think, so the Monica Lewinsky case is so interesting because, again, here's someone who we don't have any opinion of except in a negative context. We only now know her years and years later. She does this interview, and you're like, oh, well, this is a thoughtful person who actually has some good things to say about social media. Maybe some of the smartest takes on social media. I've heard one thing she said that I I really took to heart is that I hadn't grasped at all the fact that for all these years, we'd called it the Lewinsky scandal Mm -hmm. and what that means. And we all do it. We wire our brains that way. And she is very thoughtfully and forcefully saying something about how it shouldn't be following her around. It's the Bill Clinton scandal. It's not the Monica Lewinsky scandal. She's super, super smart on this. And so it's sort of the opposite of what happens an awful lot when we love someone and their work, and then they get publicly shamed, and we have to parse this out. Right now, Ryan Adams, the great singer-songwriter, is in that is in that boat for me. But here's someone who we didn't know except for being shamed, and now she seems pretty cool. Now, interestingly <laughs> enough, on Wikipedia, if you look, they call it the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at it, I said, I don't know anybody who actually in conversation or in a headline or anything actually calls it that because she was absolutely right. It's her name as the woman attached to it where, you know, you'd have but somebody. There, there was the Paula Jones scandal, the Jennifer yeah. Flowers yeah. scandal. It's all the it women's was, names. It's, <laughs> right. His name is not attached to it. But some of that is they want to differentiate. Like if you see something, something, you call something the Clinton scandal, you have a little bit more explaining that you have to do. But, um, like, volume three. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to say, and I, Lord knows, I have committed so many sins in terms of just you know being a brat and and reducing people to stereotypes and stuff. Particularly when I was on WTIC, where I was encouraged and paid to do such things. Um, but my recollection, and I covered that scandal up pretty close, too. I mean, uh, I've told this story before, but Bill Curry and I were in a studio at the Gold Building on the day the Star Report was being released. And this was back in the days of fax machines. And somebody, it might have been, might have been David Lightman, somebody was faxing it to us page by page from Washington. And during the commercials, we'd run and we'd pull the Star Report, the next four pages out of the fax machine. And we'd go, oh, my God. 
God. I mean, there just really had never been anything resembling this at all. And But, you know, the whole time, and to my recollection, the whole time it, cleared to, it was clearly a story about an abusive president who took advantage of somebody who really you know, wasn't fully cognitively developed to understand what she was getting into, didn't have the right emotional repertoire. I mean, who, you know, appeared to even believe maybe they were going to have a future. Maybe he was going to leave Hillary or something, you know. I mean, it just seems so obviously a power trip by Clinton that, you know, when, when, you, when Oliver shows like some of the stand-up routines by Jay Leno where she's really reduced to a couple of private parts uh. – it, it, it's terrible. I don't know. I, I feel like that might be one of the very few ones where I have a relatively stainless record. It just seemed really obvious at the time who who deserved the shame and not her. But maybe, but that's maybe not where the heart and soul of the country went on that. Well, it, it certainly doesn't seem like that's where the heart and the soul of the country was. A lot of people were watching Jay Leno. A lot of people were doing the exact same thing. I will say that in this interview, she is able to poke fun at herself. She makes a, a joke about going to a, a party wearing the beret, the famous beret mm-hmm. that she was shown in. But she says out loud, you know, other pieces of clothing I'm not so ready to make jokes about. And right. I think mm-hmm. that there are some things that probably are going to stick with her forever. But the fact that she can joke about them, God bless her. I think. You, <laughs> you also like the tweet about the hip-hop song. Do you yeah, just that say that? Oh, oh, absolutely. When somebody was uh, tweeting saying, I don't even know who Monica Lewinsky is. She, she literally tweets back at this guy, yeah, I'm the chick from 100 rap songs. Because there's so many rap songs that actually use Monica Lewinsky there. And John Oliver, you know, quite rightly says, it's really hard to rhyme Lewinsky. I mean, not once, let alone a hundred <laughs> different ways. <laughs> and I don't know, Jacques, you and I both, I think, truth be told, we do like making fun of people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if the rule book has been rewritten at all about that. Well, you said you were you're struggling – with the Felicity Huffman question, but that's because you like Felicity Huffman. Yeah, I mean, you know, she she's she's a really great actor, and I so intelligent, and obviously uh, has gotten caught up in something that seems needless and ridiculous, and and suddenly this person that you hadn't heard from in quite a while is on the front page for all the wrong reasons, and and uh, so you know. It, it, and and there's things that I, like I want to make fun of in theater or what have you, and I have to sit there and say, wait, I've got friends who may know this person mm-hmm. or what have you. So I I find myself restraining uh, more than I did before uh, because I think it, you have to see see these moments with, like with Monica Lewinsky where you you're like, oh wait, there's a human being attached to that, unless it's Donald Trump. Uh, or Tucker Ka- Carlson, or or Kellyanne <laughs> Conway. Yeah, you can actually uh, go down a long list of people, you know, who you can say, well, or this or that, because there's a lot game. of people you can make fun of. Yeah, I, you know, and there's Robert no Kraft. shaming. There's no shaming certain individuals. <laughs> right, but I think also, I mean, the concern I have with that is because and because we see it, we see the the mode in the other person's eye and not the beam in our own. So, and that's become kind of a technique, right? I mean, we one of the other people we read about uh, this week was James Gunn, who's the kind of creator, creator director behind the Guardians of the Galaxy series. And so conservatives who didn't like him for some other reason started mining his old tweets and other social media activity to see if he'd ever said anything on tour and very quickly found a whole bunch of pretty objectionable stuff from about a decade ago and which threw his whole career into uncertainty. This week it was announced that he's been hired back onto the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise. He will direct number three, uh, which I'm very grateful for. But, you know, I mean, Tracy, that's the thing that concerns me a little bit is it's now turned into 
kind of a technique you can use against somebody you don't like anyway. And so we like it when it gets used against Tucker Carlson and maybe they like it when it's used against, you know, some against James Gunn or some I didn't even know he was a liberal, but he must be if they're, <laughs> they're researching. <laughs> it. And, and I sort of wonder about that, too. I mean, maybe there has to be an armistice or something. I think, you know, I think, number one, we're all people who have made mistakes. We've all said something, done something, you know, tweeted something that that is objectionable. And we all have to recognize that in each other, that we are all flawed human beings. I think the difference is, is that with Gunn, when he was called out for it, when people were trying to shame him, he didn't double down. He didn't try to defend himself or say, oh, it was 10 years ago. I'm not that person. He said, yes, that was 10 years ago. I'm, I was that person. I'm not that person anymore, but that person is still part of my history and I apologize. You know, no quibbling about it, no Kevin Harding about it, no any of this sort of, you know, trying to brush it under the rug or diminish it or dismiss it. And I think that's where the difference is. And I think even if you are called out for something that you've done a long time ago, you know you've done it and you can own it and you can apologize and you can move on. And rest of society, we have to get to a place where we can accept a genuine apology that is done the right way. And I know that that's a very objective thing. But I think when people get incredibly defensive, that's when there's that lack of forgiveness, that sort of picking apart a bad apology or a or sorry, not sorry type of thing. Um, and I think that that's the place that we need to get to in society where both sides can sort of recognize that we are all flawed human beings and we're all going to screw up and we may screw up again. And I just I think that there there is a balance there. You, you said we're all I keep I keep saying we're all sensitive people with so much to give the great Marvin Gaye. Um, <laughs> I, but no, I think that you're absolutely right. I will. I maybe with with Colin, what you said, the fact is, is that people dig in. It's not just conservatives digging in for liberals. It's not just liberals digging for conservative stuff. It's everyone's stuff is out there. There have been a mm-hmm. number of high profile baseball players in the last couple of years whose tweets from when they were 18 years old in high school have surfaced and they've been really, really ugly. And it feels very much like the Monica Lewinsky thing. I mean, how much should you be held accountable for when you're 18 to 22? Your brain's not even completely formed. And then there's things that adults do and say. Mm-hmm. And they're able to either, as you said, Tracy, apologize for them, as James Gunn did, or not. And then you make your decision there. there. But I even think that at the age of 16, 18, we all know we did ridiculous things. Um, You know, some of us may not have it captured out there on the Internet. But I think even then, as an adult, you can say, yes, I was 16 and I did something that is reprehensible and I've learned from it and I'm not that person. I think you can still own what you did as a kid if it's Mm -hmm. ridiculous. You know, I think about uh, that. That woman in Hamden, I think it was this oh. week, uh, who you know lost her mind and was uh, saying these horrible racist things, and she was clearly unhinged mm. for whatever reason at this at this moment. And I'm not saying that she's mentally ill. I mean, unhinged as in something pushed her over the edge, yep. and we are only seeing a slice of the video. But what was she was coming out of her mouth in front of her children was indefensible, and. The public shaming of her was so swift Mm -hmm. and everywhere, Mm -hmm. at least in Connecticut. I mean, I don't know. I'm assuming it was probably also telegraphed nationally because thank you, Internet. And 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 she works for a school system. And right there, that's going to get you. Oh, yeah. And so it's like, all right, well, 
did public shaming work this time? Uh, you know, and, and you know because it was you know she said horrible things and she had you know some horrible results. She lost her job. DCF was called on her kids. And, you know, she probably cannot leave her home. And that's why it's different when you have powerful people. The reason it works when if that's the superintendent of the school district, you want to publicly shame that person because that person shouldn't be in charge. If -hmm. it's a private citizen, I don't know. Sometimes it's it's good to know that she didn't do the right thing. But chasing her out of her life, I don't I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think that this instance is sort of tough because it happened in a very public Mm -hmm. setting. It's not like she said something terrible and only two people heard it. And then she's being (laughs) dragged out. You know, it was filmed. It was in, in a grocery store. It was targeted at specific people. Um, so I think this is this is a harder one to parse apart of saying, well, maybe she doesn't deserve it. She works with children. Her children are there. And so I think there's yeah, all those nuances right. in there now. But there's a difference between justice and this getting pulled into a, a even bigger public square. Yeah. I mean, there's justice and then there's an inferno you can never get out of. And, and you sort of wonder, you know, wh- whether that woman has any kind of path back because the inf- internet is also forever. Uh, and and I think that's sort of an open question, too. But we have to stop anyway, take a All break, right. come back, talk about the Spider-Verse. You know, so I'm just going to begin this segment by declaring even more fervently my prejudices. In fact, I, for me, the biggest problem with this particular movie, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, is that I'm going to have a hard time talking about it in what is usually the somewhat critical measured tones that like, make analysis interesting. Um, so and it reminded me – I saw it with my son and he and I have seen many, many movies. And it reminded me of a day when he was much, much younger. He was probably about 12 where he went to see this movie called The Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger and Paul Bettany plays uh, Chaucer. And there's like all this great music and they dance to David Bowie's Golden Days. And and my son, very conscious of me and my body language, my facial expressions, we walked out of this movie. He goes, you really liked that movie, didn't you? I said, yeah. And he said, you didn't really find anything wrong with it? You didn't think anybody was miscast or there wasn't something <laughs> that they didn't do right or something? I said, is that what it's like to go to me, go with the movies to me? And he said, yeah, most of the time that's what it's like. And for me, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was another one of these experiences, which I, I just came out of the movie just squealing with, with happiness. But uh, before we hear the panel on this, and they are totally allowed to hate this movie, by the way, uh, uh, let's hear a little bit from Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, this is uh, Miles, a, a young a person of color, a young Latino person, uh, and his dad, Jefferson, talking about Spider-Man while Jefferson is taking Miles to school in a cop car. Oh, look at that. No, the new coffee shop. You see that, Miles? Totally, yeah. You see that one? What's that one called? Foam party. Foam party? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Come on. And everyone is just lining up. You see that, Miles? I see it. Is that a coffee shop or a disco? <laughs> Dad, you're old. Man. Oh. Of another mysterious seismic event last night. Sources close to Spider-Man say he's looking into the Spider-Man. I mean, this guy swings in once a day, zip zaps off in his little mask and answers to no one, right? Yeah, Dad, yeah. And meanwhile, my guys are out there. Yeah. Lives on the line. Uh-huh. No mask. You know, we show our... Oh, faces. no. Dad, Dad, speed up, speed up. I know these kids. You know, with great ability comes great accountability. That's not even how the saying goes, Man, Dad. I do like a serial woman. I'm giving that. 
Oh my gosh, don't cops run red lights? Well, yes, some do, but uh, not your dad. <laughs>
It's a total New York movie, and it's for a totally New York character. The I grew up with Marvel Comics, not not DC Comics, but Spider-Man uh, for Marvel and Batman for DC, they're, they're the same sort of character. They're New York guys. They have some special powers of a sort, but they're basically just people trying to live in a city. There's so much of the rest of the world of Marvel Comics, as you see from the many movies that they have, that is cosmic, and it's across planes of time, and it's all these characters who can do almost anything, and Spider-Man was never like that. He's a kid who grew up in New York trying to grapple with fighting crime in the city and in righting wrongs. And so this really gets the New York story of Peter Parker and Spider-Man and of Miles Morales and Spider-Man, but I think it also gets something right about Spider-Man and the way he moves throughout the world. The live-action CGI-heavy movies don't ever get Spider-Man right because of the way he has to swing around and because of the fact that he's masked, he always looks like a cartoon layered on top of live-action people. All the other characters can sort of look good. Thor can look cool, but Spider-Man never has. Because this is an animated movie, it's like a it's like a comic book come to life. And so it's the Spider-Man I grew up with actually jumping off the page. Literally, Colin, if the 12-year-old me had been able to sit and watch this movie, <laughs> my mind would have blown up all over the sides. You couldn't even imagine how I would have taken this in. It's amazing. I, I do agree, and I agree about the meta parts, too. I mean, it is very much a movie about the problem of being Spider-Man and about there being a pre-existing template for Spider-Man. And as it turns out, Tracy, uh, a multiverse in which there are other kinds of Spider-Men and Spider-People. and Which we were all brilliant, all I thought. Brilliant, yeah. I thought the they were all peg. brilliant. Yes. yes. And, Peter uh, Porker. A, a, a noir <laughs> Spider-Man who is yes. rendered entirely in black and white and I think has Nicolas Cage's Nicolas voice. Cage. Yes, yeah. yeah. yep. Uh, and, An anime-inspired one. Yeah, so it was perfect. And and I, I mean, it's a it's a point that you, be, being not a spider, not a comic book nerd, might not entirely grasp. But John's, I think, saying kind of an important thing, which is. You know, the comic book always was sort of about the problem of being Spider-Man. Like he didn't really know what to do with it. He didn't have any kind of peer group. He wasn't a member of the Justice League of America or the Avengers or the Fantastic Four. He's always this teenager alone. He used to like get the flu sometimes and go out and try to fight somebody and just get the crap kicked out of him. He used to struggle with questions about how to launder and or mend his uniform, which he had to do in secret. He was a high school student heading eventually towards college. And, and so – and, and at one point, early on, and this is when I fell in love with the comic book, it was probably about issue seven or eight, he swung through the window of a psychiatrist's office, webbed up the psychiatrist so that he couldn't move, and started peppering the psychiatrist with questions about why in the world would he be doing this? Like, <laughs> what kind of person puts on a costume and runs around getting hit by other people? Um, and, and, I mean, that's very much here in this movie. Yeah, you had yeah. midlife crisis, uh, marital troubles, oh, Spider-Man. Yes. You know, I mean, you had everything in there, and it was, it was pretty perfect. The awkward teenager getting stuck because he doesn't know what to do with the webs yes and all, i mean i just i really enjoyed all that because you could feel it you could the you humor. could say yeah you could yeah. feel the humor but you could also feel like oh, i've had that feeling before so <laughs> yeah and i think the other thing too because this character because miles is just so compelling and mm. you just root for him uh, uh, literally not just that character all the characters that are introduced all the various spider people and the other characters the mom and the dad 
I care about all of these animated figures instantly more than I've cared about all of the people in all of the live action Avengers movies by a long shot. I, jock, I just, I don't, I care when I watch the movies. <laughs> a bunch of stuff is happening. And the thing that the animation does for me is I'm able to say, okay, this is a cartoon. And it's not like watching Benedict Cumberbatch be Doctor Strange and having to grapple with the fact that I'm thinking, why would Benedict Cumberbatch actually think that this makes sense? You know, like I'm actually <laughs> I'm actually thinking about him in this role, <laughs> whereas when you're watching a cartoon, you're like, wow, this all makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> it, it, for every reason that it shouldn't work, it does, and it tackles some really big themes, and, but it also has these wonderful little details kind of all over the place. Some of the things are very obvious, homages to things, and then there are other moments that are very subtle. And I, I've ended up watching it three times now. Wow. And the, I saw it in the movie theater in yeah. 3D, and it was there was a point where several times I was like, it's blurry. And I was like, my, my eyes are going crazy watching this, and there must be... But I'm like, it's not film anymore. It doesn't go out of focus in digital yeah. cinema. So I was getting ready to go complain that there are moments in the film that are blurry. And then I went and read online that they made conscious decisions to make certain segments of the film blurry because they wanted to rep, um, uh, recreate moments of printer errors in graphic com- in, in comic <laughs> books. Uh, so that there were there were points when, when the printing went off in a comic book and you would have these kind of weird blurry things. And so it was like a purposeful little nod to the origin of of the Spider-Man story. I you know, I was like uh like wait, he his mom's Latina, his father is African American, but his last name is Morales. And mm-hmm. so I was like then I was looking to see like his father who's a police officer, his name badge to see if it was the same last name and it was last name was Davis. And then I'm looking at to see whether or not dad's wearing a wedding ring and are his parents married. And I'm like, there's so, and he wasn't wearing a wedding ring. I'm like, it's so interesting the level of detail and these certainly small things because they don't make a big deal out of, out of um, his him being of uh, mixed heritage. Mm-hmm. And so he just, just is. He just is. And so you know, there's just all these little things that you can lose yourself in this particular Spider Verse, looking at all the details. That's a first of all. I could very very easily see it two more times, uh, and I, I was sort of aware of the fact that I was like almost watching it through drinking straws or something in terms of being able to absorb all the content that was being flung at me. I do want to do a shout out in particular to that first alternative Spider-Man that we meet, who Tracy was referring to, uh, who at one point, uh, Miles is scampering through the woods with this guy and says, it's just my luck to get hooked up with a janky, broke, hobo Spider-Man. But what he actually is, (laughs) is like he's Spider-Man who just went a little bit wrong. Like the marriage uh, to, to Gwen or MJ, I guess, didn't work out quite right, you know? And he got maybe a little bit of a drinking problem and he sort of has gone wrong in, in a way that we can understand a person going wrong you know he, he invested in a restaurant chain called TGI Spidey's <laughs> <laughs> I laughed so hard at that joke that I missed the next uh, like literally minute of the movie it yeah. was <laughs> Just all the ways in which a superhero story is usually kind of a success story. <laughs> this has just gone 
uh, off the rails in a way that we really can sort of be familiar with and, and, and you know, identify with. Well, I, I will say, too, it, there have been, throughout the history of the Spider-Man comics, you know, I really was into comic books when I was, you know, just before my teenage years, and then I put them aside for a very long time, and then you pick it back up as you see all these movies. So there, there have been, in the history of Spider-Man, all of these various plot lines that have shown a Spider-Man in distress, that have shown a... Uh, a symbiotic life form that takes over his 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 costume and and takes control of his body. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that I can't really identify with as in a sort of a, an original Spider-Man fan. But the way that this taps into all of these different storylines that if you'd read the comic book since you were a kid, you'd get. And if you'd never seen a Spider-Man movie before or you'd never read the comic book, you'd get. I mean, that's the thing. Those layers are all there for everyone to see. That's why I like the fact you I will go see it more times. Yeah. So. We wish we could find something wrong to say, but nobody has anything, right? Yeah, just, I was I was ready to complain about the blurriness, the blurriness. but I'm like, <laughs> oh, it's an artistic then, choice. Yeah. I hate that. Yeah, it's I, like a I, it's a deep choice. I wasn't a big fan of when when he goes into the subway to 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 spray paint to start to tag the wall. Mm-hmm. I mean, kids who do that these days wear the little protective goggles. You sort of you know, we want to yeah. make sure that you're not breathing in all the fumes. I thought I thought about that. I thought it was a is a, a odd choice for something that was th- so thoughtful. That was yeah. literally the, the, the knit that <laughs> I had to pick. Okay, so one health and safety quibble. And, like a uh, Richard Blumenthal film. It. Yes, right. Um, I, I think he has a press release about it today, actually. So um, be it right in your inbox when you get off the air. So um, one of the other things we didn't mention uh, is the soundtrack, which is also really, really terrific. Uh, the final credits are just a joy to watch both in terms of music and just what they do. I mean, these are just unbelievably creative people. I, I can't wait to see what they do next. I kind of hope it's not another superhero thing. I want them to do tackle something else, Norse mythology with Neil Gaiman or something. <laughs> oh, um, but, I, uh, I did read that they might be doing a Spider-Man noir spinoff. Oh, well, I mean, that would be okay, too. It'd be know? very cool. Yeah, it would be very cool. So we're going to end uh, with actually one of the beginning songs. Wolfie's picked this out. Uh, this is the song Miles is singing along to in the beginning of the movie. We'll end with that. We'll take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to make some recommendations. Today's show is produced by... Wait, who are you? These are my announcements. I'm a different version of you from another dimension in the multiverse. You notice that we look exactly alike. Except for not being the same size or age. Yeah, we're practically twins. Except that we resemble each other in almost no other way. You're basically a heavily tattooed version of me. Also, we talk alike. We totally don't. I'm in another multiverse version of us that's a bird and a dinosaur and a Wendy's and a cello. Speaking of dinosaurs, what is that thing? That's the Mejiasaurus. He's a displaced version of Carlos Mejia, who produced the show today with you and me. 
Look, this is getting too weird. Next, you're going to be telling me there's a new Amanda fish who's an actual fish. You ate her on a bun for lunch. What about the part of Bill Curry? It's played by another Bill Curry who's a silent Trappist monk with purple skin and three arms. I can imagine all of that except for the silent part. Do they have any plans for Monday's show? I think they're still working on it. Just throw it back to the show. And now, back to the neck. The nose. Oh, we don't have those in our dimension. I was trying hard not to bring that up. All right, so uh, Carmen Baskoff and Kion Wolf having a little moment in, in the Wolfieverse, I guess. Uh, time to do some recommendations. Uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, what do you have for us? All right, I have two, and they both go in your belly. Um, because that is what makes me happy these days. Uh, Osa Restaurant in Middletown. Mm-hmm. Um, so delicious. I've been there a few times now and actually happened to know the chef there, Mike Denishevitz, who's killing it. Um, it's delicious. It's unique. Um, go hungry. You can try lots of little things, big plates. Just do it. Um, my other endorsement is uh, Wise Old Dog in West Hartford, which oh, is, yeah. yeah Jacob. I, they are my new favorite people. Oh. First, Jacob was really, really kind to us at the school with some stuff for our gala. Um, but really, I've, I've shown up there and been like, I have 20 in-laws coming or I have two sick kids. Give me the right <laughs> wine for that situation. And they have completely nailed it every time. My husband likes X type of beer. I need a kind he's never tried. He loved it. And they're just really helpful, non-judgmental, because um, you can tell from my wine need descriptors that yes. I am not really a, a wine uh, expert, but I <laughs> need something to help every once in a while. And they're you just great people. people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here are the people. I need something that I can deal with. So. I could add a million stories of my own. South Quaker Lane in West Hartford. Wise old dog. How about you, John? Uh, so I've got two, and they're both rock and roll related. Usually when I would plug a podcast, it'd be something homegrown by a, a local radio station. Not by Spotify, but I can't say enough good things about Stay Free, the story of The Clash. Uh, It's narrated by Chuck D. of Public Enemy, uh, and he makes a lot of asides uh, of his own about the similarities and differences, about the beginnings of hip-hop and the beginnings of punk. Uh, It's a kind of an immersive soundscape, and it takes you back to late 70s London with all this political discord and the punk scene growing. It's, It's fantastic, and I think the other thing about it is even though it has this making of the band feel, it's not this typical story where people kind of fight and come back together. It really is about the music and about the politics. So I, I highly recommend that. And another thing that you can find on Spotify, Anthony Fantano, the, the Internet's busiest, busiest music nerd, turned me on to Sharon Van Etten a number of years ago uh, with, I think, her second record. Uh, she finally made the record that she's always wanted to make. It's called Remind Me Tomorrow. Uh, her voice kind of reminds you of like 1990s Mazzy Star with a little bit of, of a little graveliness. But this is a much heavier record. It has beautiful lyrics. Uh, it's very well produced. And it's a rock and roll record through and through. Great song after great song. I cannot say enough about Remind Me Tomorrow by Sharon Van Etten. Mm-hmm. Go, go listen now. Jacques Lamar. Uh, I got to see a sneak preview of a movie that is out today, uh, which is Jordan Peele's new film, Us. Um, And it is everything. Um, So it's not just a horror film. It's kind of the movie that M. Night Shyamalan wish he could still make um, and make well. But it's it's really well acted and and, uh, it's funny and scary and trippy and it – it's it's a really worthwhile successor to to get out. So um, nice. I would highly recommend seeing it. It's very entertaining. Uh, and then I watched um, The Inventor <laughs> on HBO, and uh, I I think Alex Gibney is a uh, is a great documentarian. And I I was not really aware of this story, uh, and it's 
surprising because it it was a really big story about um, this this woman who claimed to invent a way of, of a new way of doing blood testing that was going to Theranos. revolution Theranos. So um, it's it's eye opening, not in the least because of her crazy eyes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. Um, I'm a big fan of Bill Hader. I've always thought maybe he was one of the most fascinating people to come out of SNL. I've also been thinking a lot about the creative process lately. I think about it all the time, really. And I, I often think about why it's always accompanied by self-doubt and this kind of gnawing sense that you're not any good no matter what you do. And so Tad Friend, I guess this is now maybe last week's New Yorker. Tad Friend, who's a terrific profile writer uh, in The New Yorker, has done this profile of Hater, And it turns out all of his work on Barry, which is a really terrific HBO series about to go into its second season, is accompanied by exactly that. It's a, And it's expressed in a way that I at least find incredibly recognizable. Uh, and it, it just sort of gets right at that whole problem that to make anything good, you're always struggling with this voice, if you are going to be any good, telling you it's not going to be any good, which also, if you if you turn that up too loud, you won't be able to function. But if you turn it down too low, you'll, you'll miss some of your own pitfalls and mistakes. So it's really terrific. And since I have a little extra time, I'll also mention that in the current issue of New York Magazine, not the New Yorker, but New York Magazine, uh, our buddy and occasional uh, panelist on the news, Nick Kwa, has uh, a list of the 100 best podcasts. Now, all that did was start a lot of trouble for Nick on Twitter per our first conversation uh, with people telling him he got it wrong, he left this thing off and everything. But, you know, if you're trying to break into listening to podcasts, trying to figure out, you know, what what's out there, uh, this is a pretty good one, pretty good menu to begin choosing from. It's 100, and he really did try to spread it out among a, a lot of different types. I'm going to mention one that's actually maybe not the greatest podcast in the world, but it's called One Heat Minute. And every week or every episode, they do. <laughs> they take one minute from the movie Heat, uh, and he, which is Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, and all these people, uh, and he and a guest just discuss that the host and the guest. Sometimes somebody like Manola Dargis uh, talk about one minute, and they are going minute by minute through the movie. They're like on episode 139 right now or something like that. They are going minute by minute. And just that kind of insane focus and obsessiveness is a big part of the podcast universe. So, I mean, I actually listened to two or three episodes of it in bed, turned to my significant other and said, I think I have to be a guest on this podcast. And there was a silence. And then she finally said, have you lost your mind? <laughs> <laughs> Very possibly. But it was a great uh, day to lose my mind with some terrific pe- people. Tracy Wu Fastenberg, John Dankosky, and Jacques Lamar. Thanks to the Mejiasaurus. What a triumph. Uh, his first uh, turn producing the nose. I'm sure we'll get him to do a lot more. Woodbury, Kitten on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.